me this evening in Ephesians 2. We're going to be back in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we gather this evening, as we open your word, we pray that even as we sang earlier that we would crave the living word of God. We are your people, and as your people, may we crave your word. May your spirit come. May you work mightily through your word this evening. Father, we pray that distractions would fade away. We pray that our minds would focus, that we'd be alert, that we'd be aware, that we'd be open to your Spirit's leading, your Spirit's working through the Word this evening for your glory. We pray that we'd be encouraged, that where appropriate and necessary, your Spirit would challenge us, and that we would change, and that you'd be lifted up. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I mentioned last Sunday night, last week, that on Sunday nights we're going to return to our series on the church. Our theme for this year um, is that passage, Ephesians 3, 20 to 21, which says this. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And that is our desire, that to God would be glory in the church, to Christ Jesus. But what is the church? That's what we're going to be looking at the next several weeks. That was supposed to be our theme for the year. It was supposed to be the church. And, and throughout the year, at the first Sunday night of each month, we'd be looking at a different aspect of the church. That obviously got derailed pretty quickly with COVID and, and everything else that was going down. But I don't want to just ignore it. So we're going to come back to it in the next couple weeks here. We're going to look at the church. What is it? Last week we looked at the church. We looked at its foundation. We were here in Ephesians 2. We looked specifically at verses 20 to 22. We say this, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, and whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Last week we saw the foundation. This week we're going to see the building or the makeup of the church. Who is the church? The foundation we saw last week is Jesus Christ. He's the chief cornerstone. He is the thing to which everything else in the church is related. And then laid next to Christ... That chief cornerstone, getting their direction from him, was the foundation of the apostles and the prophets who, who laid that sure foundation on the work of Christ. And then there's the building itself. The building itself. And, and we see even in another passage that, that looks at this, is 1 Peter chapter 2. 
Verses 4 and 5 say this, Coming to him as living stones, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also are living stones, being built up, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Both in this First Peter passage and here in the Ephesians 2 passage, we see that there's the foundation laid by Christ, by the apostles and prophets. And then there's this building which is being built. That is those of us who are part of the church. But what is that? Who is that? Who can be that? That's what we're going to look at this week. And that's what we're going to see in verses uh, 11 down to 19. Ephesians 2 verses 11 down to 19. We saw the foundation last week. This week we'll see the building. Those who are in the church. When I was in college in, in, in Greenville, South Carolina at Bob Jones University, there was a, a big church in the area that uh, was a ways away. They were about an hour away was their main campus, but they were planting campuses all around. That was the rage at the time. Instead of planting new churches, you just plant a campus of your church, and then you'd push a video feed of you preaching into that church, and you could claim, hey, our church has 20,000 people. And so that was, the, that was what they did. They had a church uh, plant, a campus in our area. And their big tagline was, we are this church. We are a church for people who are far from God. A church for people who are far from God. In fact, that kind of, it, they, they were a very popular church. And it kind of became a, a, a little catchphrase there where all the, the cool churches in the area would be like, yeah, we're a church for people who are far from God. The problem is that that shows a bad understanding of what the church is. Because the church is not for people who are far from God. Now don't get me misunderstood. I'm not saying that the church is for perfect people. The church is not for perfect or holy people. But the church is for redeemed people. And that's what we see this morning in this path, this evening in this passage. In Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 19. As you work your way through this passage, you see uh, the points are outside, inside, upside down. Outside, inside, upside down. As we come to this passage, it, it, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is obviously what leads up to verse 11. It's a very well-known passage. Where, where Paul uses this language that, that you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Which you once walked the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works, and the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as others. But God... And there's this beautiful contrast in this passage where it goes from you are dead to he made you alive in Christ. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, what did he do? He made us alive. He made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved one of the great statements of the New Testament, one of the great passages. 
He goes on to make it very clear, you were not saved by works, but you've been saved by grace. And then he comes to verse 11. And it's almost as if he's, he's reminding these Gentiles in this church in Ephesus to who he's writing. This is who you, you were. You were dead. Christ made you alive. But then he goes on. Therefore, verse 11, therefore, based on Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, therefore remembering what God has done, specifically in verse 10, he says, for we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Be mindful of who you are in Christ, be mindful that, that you are alive in Christ. He's given you life. He's, he's, he's uh, given you these, these good works that you should walk in them. Therefore, remember, once again, think back, not only that he has saved you from sin, but he has brought you into something. And that's the direction that this passage is going. He's not just saved you from sin, He's not just taking you from somewhere, but he's put you somewhere. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, at one point that would have been an insult to them. The Jews would have viewed them as, as outcasts, as worthy of derision. You who are Gentiles, you who, who, who were the uncircumcision, you were called that by by what is called the circumcision by the Jews, made in the flesh by hands. I, I think that's interesting. He says you were Gentiles in the flesh. The circumcision looked down on you, but they were circumcised in the flesh. Both the uncircumcised and the circumcised were in the flesh. Circumcision was simply a sign. But regardless, this is who you were. You were Gentiles in the flesh. You were the uncircumcised. What does that mean? That at that time you were without Christ. You were without Christ. He goes on to explain this. You were without Christ. You were also being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Paul's looking back in the Old Testament under the law. God had a chosen people. Israel. And this people had promises from God. They were God's people. They had direction. They had a divine instruction. But you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You were separate from that. You were outside of that. In fact, you were strangers from the covenant of promise. Not only were you outside of the people, but there was no promise of land for you. There was no promise of blessing for you. There was no promise of, of provision for you. There was no, no promise that there was a future for you. There was no promise that God was working all things for your good. You were outside of those promises. You were outside of the commonwealth of Israel. You were outside of the covenants of promise. Therefore, you had no hope. You had no promise. You had no direction. You had no God. You were without hope, and you were without God in the world. It's a strong language that Paul is, is using to remind them, describing their, their plight before Christ. 
It's very similar to what he does in, at the beginning of chapter 2 in the first several verses where he says, you were dead, this is what you were, you walked this way. According to the prince, the power of the air, the sons of disobedience, among whom we also all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh. He's naming these things. This is what you were. This is how you had no hope. The first ten verses, he's focused on the individual. Now he's focused on, you didn't have any of the promises. You didn't have any of the hope. You didn't have the promise of a future. You had no hope. You were without God. That's what we see here, the first point. You were outside. So we see in verses 11 to 12, you were outside. You had no hope. You had no promises. You had no future. You had nothing going for you. But then in verse 13, we come to the second great but of this chapter, but now. Amen. And in verses 13 to 14, we see now you are inside. You are outside, now you're inside. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off, verses 11 to 12, you, you were her, who were outside, who were afar off, who were lost, you've been brought near. How? Mm -hmm. By the blood of Christ. Amen. By the blood of Christ. By faith in the finished work of Christ. Not by works. Not by heritage. Not by circumcision. By the blood of Christ alone. This is great news. Christ died not just for the Jews. He died for all. What you were outside of. A relationship with Christ, access to God, hope, a future. Now you have access. In fact, he goes on, verse 14, for he himself is our peace. He himself, the holy, the righteous God who, who stood as judge against me. He himself is our peace. It reminds me of the passage in Romans 3, 21 to 26, a passage that, that I, in fact, I'm going to turn there and read that. I love this passage. I love the language it uses where he says Christ is, or he was the uh, just and the justifier. Romans 3, verses 21 to 26. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who are circumcised. That's not what it says. To all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. This is exactly what Paul is saying here in Ephesians. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God sent forth as propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance He had passed over the sins that are previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. He is just. He did not sacrifice his justice in order to justify you. But he did not foregoing justifying you in order to keep his justice. He is just and he is justified. 
because he takes the penalty for you. He doesn't just erase it. He doesn't just turn his eyes away from it. He takes it for you, therefore becoming both just and the justifier. He himself has done this. He himself is our peace who has made both Jew and Gentile one. He's redeemed them. Both Jew and Gentile, as he says here in, in Romans 3, where he says in, in verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. Why? Because all have sinned. And because all have sinned, all need a Savior. Whether you are Jew or whether you are Gentile. All have sinned. And by faith, all can be saved. He has made both one, Jew and Gentile. He's broken down the middle wall of separation. There were two distinct peoples, the world and God's people, Israel. Israel had promises. Israel had hope. Israel had a future. Still has, actually, today. God did not overlook all those promises. But God has torn down that wall, and now there is hope, salvation for the world. He's torn down the middle wall of separation. We don't know for sure, but, but commentators think it's possible that Paul, when he wrote that sentence, had in his mind... In the temple courtyard, there was a sign at the temple in Jerusalem warning Gentiles of the penalty of death for crossing that line, for going into the temple. They didn't have access. But he's saying, now you have access. In Christ, you have access. He's torn down that wall. In Christ, both Jew and Gentile have access to God. You were outside, now you're inside. And then as you come to verses 15 to 18, we see upside down. God has completely turned everything upside down. How has he done this? He abolished in his flesh. Have we abolished in his flesh the enmity, the hate, that is the law of commandments and con the commandments contained in ordinances. Christ came in the flesh. He fulfilled the law. Therefore, the laws, the festivals, the sacrifices meant to separate Jews from Gentiles has been done away with. It's been fulfilled. So as to create in himself one new man from the two, from Jew and Gentile, creating one new man. The clear distinction of Jew and Gentile is erased in Christ and is replaced by a new identity as redeemed in the church. No longer is your identity based on your race, whether Jew or Gentile. Now your identity is based on your faith. Now Gentiles have access to God thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both. Notice, both needed reconciling. It's not just the Gentiles that needed reconciling. 
Jews needed reconciling as well. But the road to that reconciliation was not as, as readily available to Gentiles. They were outside of the promises. They were outside of the commonwealth of Israel. But God's reconciled them both. Both are sinners and both are reconciled in Christ. And they are reconciled in one body, which is this new man, this new body, this new human humanity that was referred to in verse 15. The church. They are reconciled to God. They are placed in the one body, the church, through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he, that is Christ, came and preached peace to you who are far off, Gentiles, those of you who were outside, he came and preached grace to you. He came and preached peace to you. Those of you who were near, Jews, he came and preached peace to you. For through him, Christ, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access by one spirit to the Father. The same access. Now, therefore, because of Christ, because of all that he has done, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Not only do you now have access, not only those who are outside are inside, you're not just inside as a, as a slave, you're inside as a member of the household of God, as a family member, as a son of God in Christ. So as we see in this passage, those who are outside have been brought inside and the whole thing has been turned upside down and there's a new man, the church, this new body. And that's where Paul goes in the next passage, it's what we saw last week in verses 20 to 22. He talks about the laying of the foundation of this new man, this new humanity this new body. And it was laid. Christ himself, the cornerstone, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and then you who are redeemed. That's what he says here. In whom the whole building being fit together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom you also. Who is he talking to? He's talking to the same people he's been talking to since verse 1. Those who have been made alive, those who have been brought inside, those who have been given access. You also, those who are redeemed, are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. As you work your way through this passage, it becomes clear that the church is not for perfect people, but the church is for redeemed people. It is not your baptism, your circumcision. It's not any other work or practice or deed that places you in the church. It is by faith in Christ alone. The church is made up of those who are redeemed. And it is only those who are redeemed. And so what does that mean as we gather as the church? What does that mean as we, as we do the business of the church? It means that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. It means, as we see elsewhere, that we must love one another. It 
means that we don't allow people in our church who are not believers, who are not redeemed, who are not in Christ. They can't be a part of the church. If Christ is the cornerstone and everything in the church gets its relation from him, you can't be a part of something that you have no relation to. So our meetings as the church are not arbitrary. We must honor the Lord. In fact, uh, going back to that First Peter passage, First Peter 2, verses 9 to 10, says this, But you, this is the same passage where he's talking about you as living stones are being built up into a spiritual house. And then in verse 9 to 10, he says, But you, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Who once were not a people, that's what we see here in this passage, you were not a people, but you are now the people of God, who have obtained mercy, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And so, as we see in this passage, alongside of Ephesians 2, our purpose as we gather, and we'll look more at this next week, Lord willing, is to proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our purpose as, as we gather as the church, as those who are redeemed, is to praise our Savior, to make disciples, to equip for the work of the ministry, And in all, that we, in all that we do, we must have this mindset that we are the redeemed. Therefore, let's praise our redeemer. Let's lift him up. Let's honor him. Let's glorify him. We are his people here on earth. We are, as, the, as Ephesians 2 goes on to say, as we saw last week, his dwelling place here on earth. So we must be very careful about what we say, about what we do. We must cling to his word. We must not stray. And we must praise him. As we close